Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that they can that they can all do, that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 20th, 2014. This is episode 1350 of the Survival Podcast. And at least at the beginning of this recording, I am without internet! Yes, last night the internet went down and the uh, people from Comcast were out there till about 12.30 at night and then the internet came back and I was all kinds of happy and then today I saw them come back. I was like, it's working. Don't come back. You'll break it. I'm looking at my modem right now. It's two sad blue lights blink intermittently at me saying, yes, it's still broken. So by fixing it, they've broken it. Hopefully it will be up in time for me to do my interview this afternoon. It won't have a huge effect on the recording of today's show other than one thing. I'm going to do history segment 1351 versus 1350 today, and then tomorrow I'll do 1350 to make it right. I'll explain why later. Before that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Do you know why I love Bulk Ammo? Because they have one of my favorite things there, ammo. And you know what they have it in? They have it in bulk. Isn't that awesome? So you're going to get lots of ammo in one place with great pricing and lightning-fast shipping. That's what you'll find at Bulk Ammo. And why do you need it? Hey, if you have a gun and you have no ammo, you have a really expensive club. That's all you have. A gun without ammo is no better than a gun without an operator. You need all three of those things. The triangle of gun operator effectiveness. Get your ammo from Bulk Ammo. That's where I do, especially for all the common calibers. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. And remember, they do have a uh, discount for members of the Support Brigade. Next up today, Backyard Food Production, the awesome, the infamous Marjorie Wildcraft, who will teach you to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Check her stuff out today. She's got a great DVD series called Growing Your Groceries. Her methods are scalable. You can use these on a you know a quarter acre in the city or you know 250 acres in the country and anything in between. From carbohydrate production to protein production to gardening, you name it, she's got it. Check it out, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Remember, Backyard Food Production um, and Bulk Ammo, along with many of our other sponsors, do give discounts to the Member Support Brigade. So log into the MSB before, before you buy from them. Click on Benefits and see what discount is available there. Um, on that note, if you have not yet joined the Member Support Brigade, please consider doing so. It's $50 a year. That's 18.3 cents an episode. And I guarantee you there's more than $50 worth of discounts in there. Way more. For anybody buying the kind of stuff that we talk about every day, from guns to gardens to everything else in between, plus there's a lot of other benefits, including first shot to sign up for the Perma Ethos PDC. That's probably coming Friday is when it looks like we're going to be launching that now. Um, if you have not yet joined, do consider joining. It is how we pay the bills around here. Uh, now, let's get into a uh, history segment. It's 1350 today, but I'm going to do 1351. Here's why. So Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for me at TSP Wiki, emails me the new episodes of the history segment every day. And I, in my arrogance, delete them. Yes, Alex, I delete them. Why? Because you post them at TSP Wiki. So since you post them at TSP Wiki... I don't really need the emails because all I got to do is get online and 
go to tspwiki.com like I tell people to do every day because it's the ultimate survival wiki where you can learn about survivalism, preparedness, and sustainable living and be a contributing author as well. Just like Alex is a contributing author that does our history segments. But I can't go there today and I deleted 1350. But I did not delete 1351. So two is one, one is none. We will have 1351 today. Remember, the Black Plague has gone mental in Europe at this point. The Statute of Laborers. With the ongoing labor shortage in certain areas, the English Parliament passes yet another law to fix prices at wages at pre-plague levels. The Statute of Laborers also forbids workers from moving to more favorable economic areas. The penalty is prison. One can, until one can find something to guarantee compliance, like bail. But the law won't work either and guarantee the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. So 30 years later, people are really pissed about this whole damn thing and have a revolt. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for me, the law of supply and demand cannot be repealed by Parliament, no matter how many laws they pass. The law will simply create graft, a black market, and the desire to throw off their oppressive serfdom. Duh. In other words, Congress cannot pass a law that says everybody gets a magical rainbow farting unicorn. They can't pass another law that says when your rainbow unicorn comes, fart you a rainbow, and you make a wish on it, a guardian angel will slide down the rainbow and grant you your wishes. Actually, they can make a law that says that there's nothing stopping those morons from making a law just like that. It just won't work. There's natural laws. And there's natural laws that are both like the law of gravity. You drop shit, it falls. You can pass all the laws you want saying it is now illegal for things to fall and they're still going to fall. That is something that governments generally understand. They get that one. They're like, well, I, I, I can pass laws for all kinds of stuff, but gravity, that gravity, thou art heartless bitch. Anybody can tell me where that one came from? Oh, Gravity, Thou Art Heartless Bitch. Uh, one of my favorite TV shows, by the way. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, they get that one. But they don't understand that markets and human psychologies also have natural laws. And you can only bend the will of human beings and the psychology of human beings so far. And saying something like it's illegal to hoard silver coins and take them out of circulation won't stop it. It won't stop it at all. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And saying, thou shalt not move, thou shalt sit in thy shittieth economy and be part of thy shittieth economy and stayeth thou putteth or thou shalt goeth into thy jail cell. Doesn't work either. Doesn't work. People say, you know what, I'm going to starve here, so if you want to take me to jail and feed me, that's okay. I'm going to leave anyway. And how do you police all that? Oh, and here's the big problem. Okay, if you move, we need you there working. And everybody's dying, and we don't have enough people working. We're going to put you in jail. Oh, we lost another worker. We'll put him in jail, too. We lost another. See, the solution is the problem here. See, that's how you know markets from government. In markets, it's like permaculture. The problem becomes a solution. In government, solutions become problems. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So what are we going to talk about today for the main part of today's show? We're going to talk about fishing. Yes, we're going to continue our fishing series. And uh, 
Yeah, the internet is still blinking double blue on me. Unfortunately, I've written up the whole outline for this already in the blog. Unfortunately, the geniuses at WordPress have set up WordPress now so that if you lose your connection, you can keep typing and WordPress software loaded in your browser will automatically continue to save your updates to the browser until you're reconnected. So I didn't lose all that. So kudos to the folks over at WordPress, a fine developed open source technology, proving that you can do that. Anyway, we're going to continue with our fishing segment today. And the only downside is I can't look up the prior episodes to see some things that I might want to know. Uh, to make sure that I know that I've covered them for you, but I think I remember most of them. So far, this is what we've done in fishing, and since your internet's probably not down, you may want to listen to at least the first show in the series before you listen to this one, especially if you're new to fishing and haven't heard it yet. We've done the basics of fishing here. I talked about reels, rods, weights, hooks, leaders, lures, floats, lines, different line types, all of it. Okay. Then we did... Uh, rivers and streams, which is probably my favorite place to fish is rivers and streams. And then we did shore fishing, fishing, you know, surf fishing from shore. Today we're going to move on to lakes. Lakes are actually my least favorite place to fish, but I love fishing there anyway because I love fishing. When I say they're my least favorite, I have to couch that with something. If you're going to take me to a place I've never been before and say, Jack, you're on your own, bud. you got to find fish. And no one's going to help you. And you can talk to people. You can ask around and stuff like that. You can kick around the docks or whatever. But pretty much, you got to go figure this out. You don't get to hire a guide. You don't get to go fishing with someone that already knows the area. Lakes are definitely my least favorite, especially if they're over three or four acres in size. And especially if they're like 10,000, 20,000 acres in size. If they are small ponds or a group of small ponds, they're like acre, half acre, three-quarter acre ponds, I love them. I'll get to why in a minute. Um, some of you know. Some of you experienced fishermen know exactly why I feel that way. If it's this big-ass lake and you give me some information about structures and locations and I have a boat uh, with a sonar and a GPS and some pre-described coordinates. Or I get to go out with a guide, which I'm going to talk about in the future, how to find a good guide so you can learn these bodies of water. And I, Or it's a lake that I already know. Like I know Joe Pool Lake really, really well because of all my years of fishing it and working with people like Hal Dodd, uh, my late friend, and, and things like that. I know that lake. I know the structures. I have, I have coordinates where certain structures are. I can go there. Then I put lake fishing right on par with just about anything else. See, the thing about lakes is they're like big inland seas. And like 80% of a lake at any given time is pretty much fishless. You got that? About a big lake, about 80% of the total volume of water or more has almost no fish in it at all at any given moment in time. Now, that fish might come through there and go somewhere else, but fish generally hold in only about 20% of the water in a lake. That's all the fish. And the bigger the lake, the, the smaller that number gets. And you got to think about this. In a lake, a big lake, let's say you were in a square foot of that lake, and you made a square foot that went from the surface of the lake all the way to the floor of the lake. If that lake... At that spot, is 40 feet deep. 
even if there's fish in that square foot column, where are they? Are they on the surface? Are they 10 foot below the surface? Probably not on the bottom at 40 feet. Not a lot down there in most lakes. Are they suspended? Has the thermocline formed yet? What's that? We'll talk about that when we talk about structures. Because I actually consider thermocline a structure. Um, is it late in the year? Is it early in the year? Is the lake turning over? Is the lake not turned over yet? Is it a spring turnover or a fall turnover? Is it the stability of winter or summer? That all has to do with where fish would be in that square column of water if they're even there. So when I say 20% of the water has fish in it at any given time, that's probably too big a number. That's my best estimate with some allowance for the fact that they move around and they pattern and there's schools and things like that. So what that means is... <laughs> If you just go out and start throwing lines in without understanding the structure, the lake, the fish, the season, the patterns that are going on, it's very difficult to find fish. Now, you give me a one-acre pond, and just between, you know, I can take, let me tell you a great way with a small body of water to learn a lot about the body of water. Get a weight heavy enough to pull a bobber under, and get a slip bobber. You can easily move up and down. And then you take that weight and you say you set it about four feet below the bobber and cast it out. And cast it out far enough that when it, you know, as long as the lake's deep enough that the bobber goes under and start reeling it in until the bobber just floats above the surface of the water, just barely. Well, that, that lake's four feet deep right there. You can slip that bobber up to eight foot, nine foot deep. You can find the depths around you just with that in a matter of moments. You can go out with baits that you know work for the fish that are in that lake, and you can fish the whole shoreline of that lake and pretty far out into it if it's an acre or less and pattern it really well in just a little bit of time. And if there's fish there and you know what you're doing, you're going to find them. Now make that lake even 10 acres. Everything changes. The shoreline along 10 acres of lake is much longer than you get 10 acres in your head as being as a space, especially if that lake is you know, naturally formed or well-built and has a nice undulating shoreline. It could Just by having a lake that's not a circle, but it's more of a you know, juts and jetties and, and points and coves, double, triple, quadruple the shoreline over a lake that's a circle. And pretty much when you have a lake that's an acre or less, there's not a whole lot of that because you only have so much to work with. So you can see that one of the biggest problems we have when we're fishing a lake for the first time is where the hell are the fish? You're in a river. The river is basically a highway for fish. The river has moving water. We talked about this when we did that. I can look at the water. I can just see by the way the surface of the water is moving that something's different underneath the water. I can spot deep spots simply because the water slows down. I can spot shallow spots because the water speeds up. I can spot deep, narrow spots because the, the river narrows, but the speed is high through the, 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 the movement. Eddies and backdrops, it's all easy to see. Very, very easy to see. Surf fishing, the fish come in runs. And they relate to shorelines and guts and things like that that are easy to find. You can walk in the water and find them. Lake... You've got to start out with what are you after, 
What type of structure does it like or pattern does it move into? What is the season and what is the structure? To me, lakes are all about structures. So most of the show is actually going to be about the different structures that are in lakes and how we find them. But I do want to talk about something that I don't have in the notes, but I ended up using the word from my old you know, freshwater biology studies days, turnover. There's, and this is, this is more important in a lake than just about any other type of fishing. Water does something that no other substance known to man does. I'm not saying it's the only substance that does it, but it's the only substance known to man that does it. And if it wasn't the case, life on earth would not be possible. And no, it's not hydrate you, okay? even though that is something water does. Um, water breaks certain physical laws of cold and hot. If I take a piece of steel, the colder I make it, the denser it becomes, and the faster it would sink. And every other substance that we know of does the same thing, except water. Now, water does become denser as it becomes colder. And that's why if you go into a deep lake, the deeper you go, the colder it gets. But if, if water didn't break this law at a certain point, water would freeze from the floor of the lake up to the surface. Lakes would then freeze solid. Got it? And oceans would freeze solid. And with the ice ages we've had, we would have had what they theorize that we may have had, actually. But we would have had it in a totally different way, snowball earth. Imagine the oceans frozen from floor to surface. And the entire earth is a snowball. If water didn't break physical laws as we know them for all other molecules, this is what you would get. And just even if it was warm enough that it only froze seasonally, how long would it take to thaw out? Think about that. And certain lakes, life would be impossible because it would freeze solid every year. Some lakes would freeze solid and even in temperate climates, never thaw. Or only the surface would thaw. Why is this? As water gets colder and colder and colder, as it approaches freezing, something happens. It actually becomes less dense and becomes buoyant in warmer water. And the cold begins to rise to the surface at a certain temperature. And then at freezing, ice floats. Nothing else does this. Certainly nothing else at the temperatures where life exists on planet Earth. And this creates something very unique. In summer and winter, water in lakes stabilizes. It stratifies. And in summer, we get something called a thermocline, which we'll talk about in a bit. And in fall and spring, as the water changes, so in winter, we have ice on the surface, and we have actually warmer water beneath the surface. As the ice begins to melt, the cold water of the surface sinks to the bottom of the lake and creates a turnover. In, in fall, as we move into freezing temperatures, 
the cold water at the bottom of the lake eventually becomes cold enough that it begins to rise. And this is fall and spring turnover. And in those instances, fish spread out because everything's moved through. The lake is acting sort of, kind of, in a way, kind of, kind of, kind of baby, a little bit like a river or a bay. It has currents in it that are normally not there. And all the plankton gets dispersed. And all the fish go mental and all over the place. And you can have some of the best or worst fishing spring and fall in these turnover times depending on what the hell's going on and do you understand it. Okay? And I'm going to save thermocline toward the end of structure. But just understand that, that... In all of this dynamic, lakes do that. Does it happen in rivers? Well, some rivers ice over, but the river water is always moving. Does it happen in the ocean? Well, I guess of the, the polar caps, there's still ice there, despite what the global warming people tell you. Um, in fact, isn't there supposed to be no ice at all left in the Arctic right now? According to the alarmist, by 2013, that was the whole ice cap would be gone, and it's bigger now than it was in 2012. Okay, anyway. Um, But lakes do this. Places that we fish, this the, lakes are the ones that do this and are most affected by it. And that affects everything else I'm about to tell you about. Um, in lakes, rocks and rocky areas are structures. In my notes, I only have one thing listed, though, and that's riprap. And the reason I have riprap listed, and, and I don't know why I don't have rocks, because rocks should be, I'm going to just change it right now to riprap and rocky areas. Because some lakes just have rocky areas. But I'm thinking mainly of human-built reservoirs when I say riprap. Now, what is riprap? Most lakes that are of any size, when you find the dam breast, will be covered in large rocks, probably large rocks, you know, half the size of a bowling ball, the size of a softball, a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller. They'll be all over the breast of the dam. It helps prevent erosion, especially the constant lapping of the water up and down and up and down on the breast of the dam. And those rocks go straight down and slope into the water. That's riprap. Um, riprap is also any place somebody threw a bunch of stuff, a bunch of rocks or anything heavy and dense that's going to sink and act like a rock. And then you have natural rocky areas. Fish naturally like to relate to these. We're going to talk about some species and targeting species. And one species that loves the riprap are channel catfish during the spawning season. So any place that you see riprap may be a place that's holding fish, depending on the time of the year, the species of fish, etc. But if you think about riprap and the way the rocks fit together, they don't fit together like bricks, like a wall. There's all types of holes and cavities and things like that, and irregular structures. There's edge. Right? So this is all, all these structures are about edges and how different creatures relate to edges. So the channel catfish move in there in spawning season... Because there's holes. And channel catfish like to go in muddy holes and spawn. Well, a lot of the man-made lakes, they don't have a lot of space that's really good for channel cats to spawn. So the holes in the rocks become their choice of where to spawn. So they go in those rocks and spawn. But if that riprap is part of, let's say, a point, and wind's blowing up against it, and it's a deep drop-off point, a lot of times you'll end up with white bass up in there spawning as well. Now, they're spawning because that lake apparently would not have a good river 
or a heavy moving stream for them to go up and do their spawning thing like we talked about in the river and stream episode. So nature will find a way and they'll use that to spawn. You might have riprap along an edge that's a protected harbor and it might have a gentle push of water up against it. If it's got the right solar exposure, it might have a lot of algae growing on the rocks. Then the rocks have little places and cavities, and they become a good place for fish to grow up. Little fish are afraid of big fish, because big fish eat them. So it becomes like a little fish kindergarten. And as the fish get a little bit bigger, they move further out, and some bait fish move in to feed on the algae, and then larger predator fish move in. And all of these things make riprap something to check out. It's not a guarantee that everywhere you see riprap, you're going to find fish, or the type of fish you're looking for. But it is one of the main structures. Rocks do the same thing. If you're fishing for smallmouth bass in a lake, and you find a shallow area that moves into a bit of a deeper area, and there's big natural boulders in it, and you know then those boulders are going to create edge, and there's probably going to be small rocks mixed in with the big rocks. The small rocks become a place where things like helgramites and crayfish hide, and that's smallmouth bass candy, those smallmouths are going to be in that area unless there's a seasonal reason that's pushed them out. It's too cold, it's too hot, etc. Got it? So, rap, rip rap and rocky areas. Points. Points are something that almost always hold fish somewhere on them most of the time. And most people don't really get what makes a point a point. The obvious point they see, so a point... You've got a shoreline, then you've got a thing that juts out, cuts back in, and the shoreline continues. Big, giant point. Okay, People look at that and go, okay, that's a point. That's always a place where if there's shore access, you generally see people fishing. Because they think it's like a pier. Right? I'm going to go out on the pier. So I go out on the end of the point, and they think you're getting deeper into the lake. And they might be if it drops off, but usually all they're really doing is getting out on that point, and then they can actually cast to both sides. They can work the area, and it's a great place to shore fish. And I'm going to try to throw in things on shore fishing through here because I have one on guides and boats uh, coming down the road in this series as well. But the point really is not getting you further out. It's just you're on that structure. Now, the thing is, a lot of times, a point will be mostly below the surface and not quite that visible. And if you're in a boat, you can see that point because you see a little dip coming off of the shoreline from the boat, you turn your little sonar on, you know, your depth finder, and you can go in, you might find the image of that point below the surface. That point's going to hold fish. Again, depending on the season, the time, the species, etc. But you're looking for points, whether they're obvious or not so obvious. That takes us to humps. Humps are invisible when you're talking about a true hump. I guess technically an island is a hump. So if you have an island in the middle of a lake, you have the shoreline, and the island's a protruding hump in a way. But that's just really a different type of shoreline to me. You might have points on that. You might have coves on that island, what have you. When I say hump, I mean something that if you're standing on shore and you look out across the water, the water's all smooth on top, and there's nothing there. But you get in your boat, You turn on your little sonar, and you go driving that boat over there, and you see the bottom come up and go back down. Now, that can be a ridge or a true hump. If it's a true hump, you should be able to kind of find the edges of it. These are amazing for holding fish, depending on the season, the type of the species, and the water that you're in, and the, the pattern the fish are in. But we catch the hell 
out of white bass on humps. And generally, this is a pattern that we find works well for us in North Texas on white bass. When you have water that's in the, I'd say, 28 to 36 foot range, it could be a little deeper, maybe a little bit shallower, and that's pretty much the area is all that kind of a depth, kind of a, in that you know one uniform depth. And you find a hump that comes up to about 18 feet. You got fish at 18 feet on the edge of that hump, and usually you'll find a hump maybe comes up to eight, 16, 18 feet, and at about 20, 22 feet of water around the edge of that hump, white bass just hang out. We find channel cats hanging out there. We find drum hanging out there. But it's, it's the white bass, uh, the stripers, and the hybrids that we really find heavily in those areas. And uh, so that's, that's one example of, of humps producing. Now, you'll notice the distinctive lack of me talking about largemouth bass because they're just not one of my favorite fish to, uh, to go after. Um, I'll actually talk a little bit in a second about um, a way I actually do like to target largemouth bass in smaller lakes. But um, I have been out fishing an awful lot in, uh, in different environments where I'm chasing white bass or something else, and I see bass fishermen doing their thing. And in the pre-spawn, I know definitely I've seen a lot of bass fishermen being very successful on humps, usually a little bit shallower than the humps I'm after white bass on. They're usually in humps at like 12, 14 feet of water at the top of the hump. Total depth, probably 25 feet. And that's in the spring when the water's still cold and the bass haven't moved into the shallows yet. A lot of times they'll be in those humps. And they're there for the same reason. There's, 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 there is uh, just the flat-out reality that bait fish end up congregating around these humps, often because plankton will be blown into the area and held there by the hump, and the plankton create an edge, and then the smaller zooplankton come in to feed on the phytoplankton, which is the plant plankton and the animal plankton, and then that brings in some of the bait fish like shad, and then that brings in the other fish. So they move into those areas when the water is more of the temperature that they're looking for, and they're held there by the bait fish and the structure itself. But humps are definitely something you need to be looking for. Or asking about, where are the humps in the lake? And a lot of times you can find lake maps that will have humps and indicators on them as well. Um, docks and bridges are obvious structure. And that because of that, they get a lot of pressure. Now, the, the nice thing is in bigger lakes where you can put a boat on, in general, you might own a boat dock, but you can't tell people, you can't fish under my dock, you can't fish next to my dock, you you know, you, generally it's not acceptable to tie up to somebody's dock without permission, but I've seen that done. And most people, honestly, as long as nobody's creating any problems or anything, don't really care. But docks create a variety of structure types. One, they create a place where things grow. You've, you know, you've seen in, in saltwater, you see barnacles, but in freshwater, you see freshwater mussels and different types of uh, shellfish growing on the, the pylons of a dock. Uh, you have the pylon itself creating a vertical edge from the surface all the way down to the bottom. And then you have the dock itself creating shade. And in hot weather, fish will often move up under those docks in the shade. These are usually really good places to find um, sunfish, such as bass. Bass are sunfish, Mr. Uh, tournament Fisherman. They just are. They're a great big bluegill. Uh, bluegill, shell crackers, things like that. 
A lot of times cat, you can find big catfish up under there, but not in the numbers you usually find other species. And saltwater snook love to get up underneath there. Sheep's head love to get up underneath there. Uh, trying to confine myself, though, to freshwater. Um, they're just usually a good place to find fish. And bridges, this is what I found with bridges. Joe Pool Lake, I keep talking about that I know really well. There's a bridge that goes across the lake near a marina. And as it goes across that lake, there's two creek channels from the original creek that went through there that was impounded to create the lake. And those creek channels dump down to about 22 feet. And most of the area, once you get into the main part of the lake, is around 18 feet. So you've got a drop there. You've got a hole and a channel, which is another type of uh, structure. But the, the bridge itself has these pylons, and the crappie fishermen tear up the crappie in there at certain times of year when the crappie relate to those pylons. But what, what I found was that in the heat of summer... We'd be out fishing for the, the white bass on the humps, and they would be really good in the morning and the evening when it was cooler. But in the heat of the day, they would disappear. And there were some other places we found them as well. And when I talk about white bass, I'm going to talk about a thing called Hellpet and, and what that is later. But we found that running Hellpet along those creek channels in the shadow of the bridge, wherever the shadow happened to be during the heat of the day, so the shadow would move as the sun moved, And right when the sun was straight overhead, it was impossible because the shadow was straight down underneath. But as that bridge shadow moved out either to the east or the west, by running, trolling through that shadow, we would pick up a lot of fish. Because the water was just basically a little cooler there. And they were just moving with the cool spot. So that's an example of sort of an intangible structure. The bridge is the structure, but the shadow that it's casting becomes a structure, becomes an edge. That's getting a bit sophisticated, but that's that's how you have to think. And with a dock, it's obvious, because the dock's low to the water. You see the shadow. You think that's cooler water. Fish wants to be in there. But I don't think people think about it with large bridges as much, especially as the sun moves and the shadow moves, that the structure actually moves as the shadow transverses the water. So that's, that's kind of a, a secret tip that I'm giving out to 90,000 people right there. Uh, brush piles. Now, brush piles take up. You know, this is like saying, you know, it's like ice cream. Vanilla, chocolate, pistachio, Rocky Road. You know, is it ice cream or gelato or ice milk or frozen yogurt? I mean, the whole concept of ice cream just is a huge, you know, cornucopia of different flavors and things and varieties. Is it a sundae? Is it a cone? That's kind of how brush piles are because a brush pile could just be, you know, a tree that fell into the water, right? Um... It, it could be um, a, a bush that, that fell into the water. It could be man-made and constructed. In again, and there's a lot of lakes down here that when the Corps of Engineers put them in, they built brush piles. And some of these brush piles, and those of you from the South, especially Texas, will know what I'm talking about, are like Aggie bonfire brush piles. I mean, when you see them on a, on a sonar. They're like this like huge spike. You know, the water might be 30 feet deep. And you might have a brush pile that's as big around at the base as a house. And it's stacked 15, 20 feet high off, off the surface. Crappie, catfish, bass, all types of fish relate to that. 
And it's, it's pretty obvious when you see it, but you, you don't know that it's there. Now, again, some of the lakes and bays, magazines and stuff like that will actually have GPS coordinates, if you can find one, or maps of certain lakes where these things are. There's generally more there than the ones on the maps, and the ones on the maps are usually a little bit higher pressured. Now, closely related to brush piles is something you can see, and that's standing timber. So a lot of times when a lake is being created, they'll have a stand of timber. They'll know they're going to create a shallow in there. Now, that shallow the trees could be 15-foot trees sticking two feet out of the water. Right? They could be the trees that died and, and, and rotted back, and they're sticking two feet out of the water, but the water's only four foot deep. You have to figure this out for yourself, but when you see what looks like an old forest, dead trees sticking up out of the water, that's exactly what it is. It was a place where there was a wood air, wooded area that was going to get flooded by the lake. A lot of times these are back in coves and things like that. And the, the people building the lake understood this, and instead of clearing it, they left it as structure. And there's almost no species of freshwater fish that won't relate to that structure at different times. It can be difficult to fish, though. You got to watch out for the bottom end of your motor moving into these areas because, let me put it this way, when you see 80 trees sticking up out of the water, there's probably 120 that are below surface where you can't see them. And just because you're going between two doesn't mean that they're not actually a big Y of a tree and you're about to run into the Y at the bottom. And you know what happens when you hit a Y with the bottom end of your motor and you're moving too fast? You say, why? Why did I do that? So there's, there's that component. Shallow running, slow moving, trolling motors. Plus they're just difficult to fish. You're casting into a, a realm of snags. But there's a lot of value in that standing timber. And what you, what you realize over time, especially locals seem to know pathways through the standing timber. Channels, safe passages. Sometimes they're marked with buoys. Right now, I've never said this so far, but a boater's course is a good idea. You know, learning things like what red and green mean are a good idea. I'm not going to go into that today. But, you know, are you in the channel or are you on the, you know, one side or the other of the channel? And is that thing coming at you ahead as if it's a boat? Is it, Are you looking at a boat coming at you or going away from you? This is about red and green. Okay, but you'll find these channels and pathways through. And fishing the edges of these standing timbers or getting into the standing timber. And I've seen, you know, people that get in using flat bottom boats. And they even pull up their trolling motor and they'll pull into standing timber. And that way if, you're, if your boat's coming up where it's going to get stuck, you can push back off. And there's a lot of value in there, but you're also mucking around. So you're disturbing the bottom and you're scaring fish. So there's a balance to fishing standing timber. Most people who do it effectively get into the edges of it and fish in. Crappie. This is, this is like, especially with the right depth, crappie headquarters. Uh, but definitely catfish move into these areas, bass move into the areas. Like I said, almost everything will move into standing timber. Another structure that gets usually fished a lot by people from shore are jetties. Now, we usually think of jetties in the ocean. You got the you know, ocean coming, crashing in. You got this great big jetty creating a harbor going out. And it's like a big man-made point, riprap. We've already talked about all over it. And you can walk way out there like a pier and fish. Well, these exist, especially on larger lakes as well. They often exist to create harbors so that people can tie their boats up without getting all of the turbulence off of the main lake. These are great places to fish. They're basically a point. They're riprap, and their other edge structures all combined into one. They're man-made, and they have distinctive areas on them. 
They generally have a, a part that's leeward to the to the to the rough part of the lake. So when the wind's up and there's whitecaps on the lake, it's like a it's like a shore. That water's beating up against it. There's an end where the water slows and comes around that point, and there's different fish that'll move in there, and that's generally a pretty deep area. And then there's a calm side. You know, the, the, the side that's sheltered, that actually shelters the harbor or the port. And that calm water is a different water. And the only way to know what's in there is to fish it, take a look with your sonar and things like that. I've moved in on the backside of some of those where there's boat slips and all. And you just think they should be full of fish, and there's not much. And yet they're right out on the point. I've seen often where there's one of a jetty that's creating a harbor, and there's lights in the harbor. And it's almost dark, but not quite dark. And those lights are on, and bugs are coming around, and plankton's being pulled up by it. A lot of times, white bass will move in and feed on the surface, right at the entry to one of those. Um, and topwater baits are deadly on them at that point because they're just slamming whatever's on the surface. And they usually will only hit in that type of situation early morning. For some reason, they're still hanging out there, and late evening but not quite dark, and the, the bite will be on. It'll be on for 10, 15 minutes, and it's gone. But that type of structure is something to look for. Coves. Coves are where you know the bass fishermen make their living many times, especially as you get into warmer waters. The fish move into spawn. They move up in the shallower coves. But a cove is just basically the opposite of a point. The point juts out. The cove is water jutting in. And coves also usually have mixtures of brush piles and standing timber. So the cove helps you find other structures. And then there's more subtle structures. Weed lines. And weed lines are another thing that you see and then maybe you don't really see. So there's the common weed line that everybody thinks of. And this is the shore fisherman going, damn it. You know, you got weeds coming off, off the shore and going out. And they go out 10, 12, 15, 20, depends on the lake, 20 feet maybe, coontail and things like that. And then all of a sudden the weeds stop and you go to open water. And the shore fisherman is trying to cast over the weeds, keep his stuff out of the weeds, things like that. Trying to find a, a break in the weeds where he can fish from shore. And the boat guy is just cruising along the weed line, fishing the edge of the weed line. It's, it's pretty obvious why fish are going to hold there. You got little fish, you got plankton, you got shade, you got everything you could possibly want as a fish. And the fisherman can, can actually work a bait or work a lure along that weed line because it's not going to get as tangled up. Now there's topwater lures and things like that the bass guys use, but you know, that is the obvious weed line. But it's not the only weed line there is. Sometimes you're on shore, maybe earlier in the year, and the weeds just haven't gotten to the surface yet and they're growing from the, from the, from the bottom up. Well, let's talk real quick about what often creates that weed line away from shore. A lot of these weeds are not floating weeds. Most of it's not. Floating weeds end up tangled in the non-floating weeds and become a mat. And that's why they end up back in the coves and ledges and stuff. But the, the stuff like the coontail and all that's anchored, it comes up from the, from the, from the, from the, uh, the floor of the lake. And when you get far enough out that not enough light gets to the bottom for it to effectively grow, it stops growing or it grows weaker. So what happens is, right, wherever that good light penetration is, and wherever it ceases, that main weed line goes away. Well, there's two other things that happen. 
As you go a little further out, the weeds can still grow down there. They just grow a lot slower so they don't make it to the surface as fast or ever. So you have another weed line. Your weed line past your first weeds is, if you were looking down through the water, if it was crystal clear, you look down, it looks like grass down there. And it might be a couple feet deep of weeds. And then you have a line of weeds between where you have open water and the weeds below. It's another edge, permaculture. But as those weeds start to grow early in the spring, the shore fisherman is fishing that same type of weed line just because they haven't made it to the surface yet. Or they haven't made it to the surface as far out. So that's another type of weed line. And sometimes you'll find a hump, deep water, a hump, which is like an island that didn't get out. And the, the, the water's deep enough that the weeds don't make it all the way to the surface, but they do grow a couple feet off of the floor. And then you've got a weed line there. Anywhere you have a place where open water and weeds coincide is usually a good place to fish. You also sometimes do have a floating weed bed. And, you, and the weeds that are floating shade out the floor of the lake or the water's too murky for much of it to get down there. And if you can get a bait underneath the mat, not through the top, but underneath, it's usually a good place to hold fish. So weed lines. Ledges. A ledge is where you have a sloping shoreline and then a quick drop-off. And that drop-off is also a structure. See, any place there's a change, there's a, there's a structure. But a lot of times, that ledge, right before it drops off, fish really hold there. When they feel threatened or pressured, they can just drop into the deep water. When they're hungry, they can move up. Temperature changes, they can thermoregulate. Right, it's a very important word for fish, thermoregulation. Thermoregulation means you thermoregulate, but a fish has to thermoregulate. In other words, you have a body that does some thermoregulation on its own. A fish, not really. Right? So if a fish is cold, it's cold. If it's hot, it's hot. And what I mean by that is if I put you in a room with ten other people, and the room was kind of warm, uncomfortably warm, But there was a vent blowing cool air out of the room and some chairs over there. But the cool air wasn't enough to cool the whole room off. When I came back in the room, all of you would probably be sitting in those chairs right in front of that vent and letting that cool air blow on you. Because you like each other? No, you might, but you might not. You'd all get along with each other, though, and you'd congregate there to thermoregulate in the cooler area. Conversely, if the room was cold... Very, you know, cold enough that you were uncomfortable with the cold. And I had something radiating some heat in that room, but it wasn't enough heat to heat the whole room. I'd find you congregated around the heat. The room was hot, hotter than you'd like it to be, but survivable. And we still had a heat source in there. You'd probably all thermoregulate out to the edges of the room and get as far away from the heat source as you could. Now imagine that you did not have the ability to regulate your own body temperature internally. You weren't warm-blooded. You'd thermoregulate a lot more. So whenever we have a ledge, we have an opportunity for fish to thermoregulate. Again, because the water is deeper, it's cooler until we reach turnover status. It's shallower, it's warmer. So a fish will relate to that ledge, especially a predator fish, 
Because it gives that fish everything it needs, especially if there's a weed line incorporated in this or some rocks, boulders, riprap, standing timber, things like that. Then it gets even better. Because all the little fishes that generally don't mind the water being pretty warm or can get up under the weeds in the really shallow water where it's cool comparatively to the open water where the big fish can't cram in there because it's too shallow or too tight, they'll all cruise around in there and occasionally venture out into the open water and bam, get eaten. And that big fish can just sink off the side of there, very little energy expended. And when he's ready to come up and feed and the water's a little cooler in the morning or the afternoon, just kind of floats up and cruises in. And when he realizes he's chased all the little fishes away, he can kind of just sink back down, let activity return to normal, cruise back through, feed again. And, and just follow that pattern. And those fish a lot of times will hang on ledges like that all summer long like that. Big catfish, things like that. A lot of times you can find a ledge and a drop-off and level out. And that's a great place to fish for catfish, especially jug fishing, which I won't get in today, but just over the edge of that ledge. Just where you set your jugs. Or just on that ledge, right at the edge of the ledge before it drops over. A catfish comes up. When he comes up, he's looking to eat. That's why he's there. He's looking for something easy to just, okay, I've got my caloric intake down. We'll sink back down in this cooler water and chill out a while. When I'm hungry, I'm going to do it again. See, what you have to understand about fish is they're really biologically good at what we call in permaculture an energy audit. A fish will not expend 100 calories to consume 50 calories worth of bait fish. He won't do it because he'll die. He'll eventually lose enough weight that he won't be able to hunt effectively anymore, and he'll die. So a fish wants to make sure that every time he consumes another thing, that he's had to expend energy, that that object that was consumed has more energy value than the fish expended. Now, they're not thinking creatures. They're not like, hmm, I'm going to coolly and coldly calculate the value of that crawfish based on his size, based on my... They've just biologically adapted to where it's a default. So that's something programmed into a fish. So that's a constant. You know the fish is going to relate on these energy audits on these structures. That's how you get inside the fish's mind. So that you present the bait as it's appealing, as it fits the pattern, as it relates to the structure. Okay. Now, you also have holes. So a hole is the opposite of a hump. You've got shallower water, and shallow is relative. Shallow could be 2 feet, it could be 20 feet, depending on where you're at in the lake. And then you've got a place that drops down. That's usually cooler. Sometimes that's loaded with fish. Sometimes a fish won't go near that place. It all depends. I'll tell you about that when we get to thermocline. Sometimes it's just too deep. A lot of times where it's really, really deep, though, somewhere is that, that hole works its way up toward the regular depth, Somewhere in there, there's a place that's perfect. It's a honey hole spot. It's cool. It's not too bright. It's got some other structures around in it. I can hang out here. Gee, I can act just like I do on a ledge, except I'm in the middle of the lake. I can hang down in this area, wait till I'm hungry, float up, bang, nail me some bait fish, hang back down in here. So another opportunity to thermoregulate, to energy audit their consumption, Holes are just another example of where something changes. Shallows. 
Shallows, when they have fish in them, are usually highly productive. Most of the time, not all the time, most of the time when fish move into shallows, they're either feeding or spawning. So if they're feeding, all you got to do is get something that looks like what they're eating in front of them and they're going to eat it, as long as you're not too close or improper with your presentation. Or they're spawning. If they're spawning, generally they get very aggressive toward anything that approaches their bed and they're going to hit it out of anger, hatred, and rage. So they also become pretty easy to, to, to catch. And many fish feed heavily while they're spawning. So you have the aggressive spawning behavior with the enhanced feeding behavior to compensate for the energy being put into spawning. This is why shallows fishing works really well, especially for fish in the sunfish family. Bass, bluegill, shell crackers, any of those species, when they move into those spawning areas, crappie, same type of thing. White bass, yes, but I don't generally find them in shallows. They're either spawning in moving water like rivers and streams with gravel bottoms or they're up on points and, and ledges with a lot of gravel or they're on humps is where I find them most frequently, but shallows. And what you're really looking for is tail out shallows. So you've got deep water, a ledge, and then it tails gently into a shallow. One of the best ways to find bass and bluegill in these shallows is you bring a boat in from the deep water really, really slowly so you don't spook the fish And a lot of times you'll see beds. You'll either see clearings in the weeds, or if there's not a lot of weeds, you'll, if it's clear water, you'll see what looks like plates, you know, discs of, of, of holes everywhere, potted out like little mini moon craters, and fish moving into those beds. And those, fishing those beds is dynamite. Um, some places you have seasons that specifically don't let you keep fish during the time. You can usually fish for them anyway. And in most places, fish like bluegill, which is one of my favorite fish for eating, you know, there's, there's really either big limits or no limit on them because they are so productive. And actually, if you don't harvest them, you end up with stunted fish and small fish. So it's good to harvest them even when they're spawning because they're so prolific. Um, and then there's the thermocline, something I've kind of danced around up till now. Something happens as water warms, okay? Generally, cooler water has more oxygen in it. The cooler the water, the more oxygen it has. But as I talked about with the turnover, in summer and winter, and especially summer, is this, this is the case, in summer, the lake becomes very, very stable. And the bigger the lake, the more likely there'll be a thermocline and the more effect that it will have. Okay? Now, As the water stabilizes, what happens is the thermocline forms this very thin layer between relatively warm and relatively cold water. And because there's almost no mixing of the two, it's almost like somebody went down there and put a cap on it. Like you put a barrier on it. The life that's below the thermocline begins to consume all of the oxygen that's down there. And unlike the warmer water that's being moved around by wind and motion and things like that, very little oxygen is created below the thermocline. And it becomes a low oxygen environment. People that fish jug fishing will also often find catfish will go down there. okay, And they'll take a bait down there on a jug. But then when they come to pull the catfish in, the catfish is dead. Why is he dead? He couldn't get... The weight and the jug held him at that depth, and he only went down there to feed and leave 
And since he was held down there for too long in a low oxygen environment, he died. So below the thermocline is not usually a good place to catch fish because it's low oxygen. But water being what it is, and cooler water being a, a more preferable environment in the heat of summer, that thermocline will often become an edge, and fish will find an area right at the thermocline or just above it, or even sometimes they'll feed just below it. All right? In the lakes around here in Texas, we often find the thermocline holding 18 to 22 feet in the summer. And the bigger the lake, the more prominent and more likely and more established that thermocline is going to become. If you're fishing a body of water with it, especially midsummer, it becomes a very important structure in the lake. I'm going to leave it at that for now because when I talk about white bass, I'm going to talk about how you actually use that structure. And then there's what I call your own creations. Some of what I'm telling you may be illegal in the state, lake, or locality that you're doing it in. It is up to you to check and find out whether these things are legal or not. All I'm telling you is that they are frequently done, especially by professional fishermen guides. Uh, especially crappie fishermen tend to do some of these things. So there's my disclaimer. One thing I know crappie fishermen will do, and they usually guard the location of these things very, very tightly uh, to the point where if you hire them as a guide and they catch you with a GPS on one of their, um, their, their creations, they will take your GPS and throw it into the water. And then they will take you back to shore, give you a refund, and tell you never hire them again. They, I'm telling you, that's how, how closely guarded some people are about these, you know, Personally created brush piles. Sometimes it's just they sunk a bunch of trees. The thing about that is if you sink a bunch of trees somewhere, and I cruise along with my little, uh, my, you know, my, uh, my sonar, right, my fish finder, I can see the trees and go, oh, there's a brush pile. There's, maybe, I don't know if it's a brush pile. There's a structure there. PVC pipe is almost completely invisible to fish finder technology. Because the density is so similar to that of water of itself. So what they'll do is they get a five-gallon bucket, they put a big pipe in it, and they fill it with sackcrete, wet it down, and let that pipe set in the bucket so it'll sink. And then using fittings and things like that, they build a big tree-like structure out of PVC. Right? They might even, so that no one sees it, dry-fit it, okay, and take all the parts and sort them out so it's easy to put back together using common uniform junctures and sizes, okay, almost like I know what they do, and put it in the boat laying down and not fully assembled so no one sees it, drive out to a place they know it would be great to have a brush file, look around and make sure nobody's looking, quickly assemble it, and sink it. Mark it on their GPS and repeat And some guides have 15, 20 little forests of these brush piles sunk in lakes at different depths in different areas and different sizes, especially crappie fishermen. Because the fish don't give a damn if it's wood or metal or plastic or leaves. They don't care if it's the right kind of structure. They'll hang out in it, and crappie love that. Now, by thinking about the size of the hook, and generally crappie fishermen using minnows or jigs that they're going to use, and the diameter of the pipe, you can make these things almost snag-proof. Because the hook isn't big enough to get around the diameter of the pipe. You can see why they use this so much. 
That's one type of a structure that can be built. And if you go to pond building forums where people are building their own ponds and they're building structures like this for their own ponds before they flood them, you'll see all different makes and permeations. But the, the bucket, so I can sink it from a boat and know it's going to land upright and stay upright is the most common one used. And yes, they are used in public bodies of water. It may, in fact, be illegal. I'm just telling you that it's done. Just telling you that it's done. Now, another type of structure made with PVC that's dynamite for attracting and holding sunfish, bass, bluegill, shell crackers, things like that. You get PVC pipe, four to six inch diameter. Cut it in one to two foot lengths. Drill holes in it and stack it kind of like a pyramid shape for firewood and bolt it together. And then put that down into the water. So basically what you've got is a series of tubes The tubes will fill up. Who knows what that's from, right? So you have a series of tubes, and it is a great place. Cats like to go into things like that, too, but not as much as the bluegills and sunfish. So a few of those placed in certain areas will generally hold a lot of, you know, like, plate-sized bluegills. Just saying, you know, hand, you know hand, bigger than your hand bluegills, great eating fish. All of this is why I love GPS so much for lake fishing, though. It takes a lot of work to find these places where there's weed lines at certain times of the year. So a journal's a great idea. So eventually you may realize that what looks like a hump is actually a subsurface weed line, uh, maybe from just snagging some you know, snake grass or something like that and seeing, okay, those are weeds down there, and that it's holding fish, and that the date is May 15th. Well, you might want to note that. Because odds are, unless the, the, the level of that lake dramatically changes or the season has a dramatic shift, that that weed line is going to have regrown and been there and holding fish around that time. So a note that the weed line was, and then mark it with your GPS. Because you won't remember. You'll think, well, I'll know that hump's kind of over there. And you'll spend an hour and a half driving around in your boat looking for the hump. When if it was marked on your GPS, you drive right to that point, you drive to the waypoint, there's the hump. So GPS for all of this stuff, especially your own creations. All right, I'm going to talk about some other own creations that you can make as I go through some of the fish that I really like to target in lakes. So let's start out with uh, one of my favorite fish to catch because I like to eat them so much, channel catfish. Um, I've talked about some things already, but riprap, a lot of times you'll find fish, uh, especially channel catfish, in, in late spring, early summer, up in that riprap, Uh, especially you'll, they'll feed heavier in the morning and the evening, spawning uh, in about one and a half, two feet of water only. And usually the only good way to fish those areas is using a bobber. You can do it from shore, but I've had better luck doing it from a boat, pulling up and anchoring in a little bit deeper water where you can cast almost to shore and bring the bait and find the fish at their depth using a very sensitive float treble hook, punch bait. And a lot of times chumming that area will help a lot as well. Um, you could chum with something as simple as some canned corn. And I talked about using corn for trout in streams and rivers and said get the good green giant golden nuggets with the point on them, whole kernel, because they stay on the hook. When you're chumming, it doesn't matter. You can use a store brand. Um, I'm going to talk about chumming more in just a second. But that's just one place that they hold really well. Another pattern I found is... If you find a bridge, like I talked about earlier, with creek channels, and usually bridges will have creek channels, and if you can find a place where the thermocline 
is right about the average depth, and then the channel is deeper than the average depth. So the channel is below the thermocline. I mentioned thermocline in this area, 18 to 22 feet. We find it often at 18 feet in our smaller lakes, our five, 8,000 acre lakes. So what I've found is in the summer as it gets hot and the channel catfish are done with the spawn and they move into deeper water, if you could find shade from the bridge, creek channel, creek channel slightly deeper than the thermocline, pull up underneath that uh, bridge, tie off to a pylon, and chum that area, you'll often do very well in that area. Especially if you find with your depth finder the depth of the channel, and the depth of the main um, uh, the main floor of the lake. Drop the line all the way to the bottom. Let the bait hit the bottom. And then reel up. Let's say if you're at 18 feet for the main depth and 22 feet for the bottom of the channel, you have a four-foot differential. Reel up four feet, but leave it over the channel. Because what happens is those channel cats are moving down into that channel, funny enough, looking for stuff that's being pushed through the channel. There's a little more oxygen even below the thermocline in that area because there's a creek channel, so there's still a natural existing kind of flow of water through there, even if it's much slower than it was when it was a true creek. And there's some turnover, and there's some turbulence, and there's some disturbance even below the surface because of the pylons of the bridge. So it's not quite as low oxygen. And, and channel cats, while they use their, te- their, their, their feelers to feed on the bottom visually they feed up so you want to bait above them because they see if you look at a channel catfish or any catfish where their eyes are they see to the left and the right and up they don't see down at all so by hovering that bait over that channel you generally do really well even though you're chumming right into the channel uh that's been dynamite for me couple rod holders two rods kale style hooks over the side of the boat i've had days where i'm hitting them so hard like that that I end up having to take one of the rods out because I can't keep up. I actually get less fish with two rods because I'm missing fish and losing fish trying to work two rods. That's that's worked beautifully for me, especially in that summer pattern. So that's another way to catch catfish. Now, chumming a spot consistently, as long as it's not a place that's going to repel fish, will almost guarantee you that catfish will congregate there. And that means if you can fish a body of water several days a week, just by chumming it, you can really attract fish to that area. If you have two or three other friends that routinely fish the area and you can agree one or two places, you're going to make honey holes and chum, you can have catfish hitting that all the time. This may be illegal in some states or localities. Please check your local game laws. It's not illegal here in Texas. Let's talk about chums. There's two chums that I like to use the most for catfish. If I'm in a short and there's a third one I'll use in short order. There's like a Mr. Catfish, comes in a bag, stinks to high heaven, big clump, nasty thing. You clump it into like balls the size of softballs, drop it in, and it works really good. But it gets expensive if you're going to use it all the time. I wouldn't use it for the honey hole approach. But when I used to do these pattern fishings I would talk about in this deep water, if I didn't have any chum made up, I would use it, and it worked really good. The chums I like to keep on a boat, the one I like to keep on a boat Range cubes for cattle, they're made with cottonseed oil. Catfish like them, but you don't want to overuse them. You need the ones that are at least 20% protein. You go to a feed store and say, I want uh, 
range cubes, 20% protein, they'll know exactly what you mean. The reason you want 20% ones, they sink. They look like a great big rabbit pellet. Uh, they're a couple inches long, a little bit bigger around your thumb. You can keep those in five-gallon buckets on a boat or in a car if you shore fish. You go out to a place, a couple handfuls at a time only. They generally do a pretty good job pulling the fish in the area, keeping them in there. They don't feed on them that much. It, the scent pulls them in. It makes them feel like something's there, and it brings other little fish and things in that eat them, and that brings channel cats in. Channel cats are both a scavenger and a predator. The reason I know they don't feed on them that heavily is I kept some channel cats in a fish tank for a while, and when you toss in a couple pieces of range cubes, they'd come over and nibble on it a bit and hang out there, but they didn't eat it all, and it would cloud up the tank and had to be cleaned out. So I've actually researched that to see that they don't feed on it that heavily, but I know it brings them in. It doesn't work as good as the next chum I'm going to give you, but the next chum I'm going to give you stinks. And if you get it on your boat, your boat will stink. If you get it in your car, your car will stink. And if you get it on you, you will stink. And you will stink bad. It is fermented wheat. So you get dry wheat. Barley works, works as well, but wheat seems to be something they like more. You put it in a bucket. You fill the bucket with water. You put the lid on it, cocked off to the side so that it can get exposure to the air. You stir it every couple days until it starts to stink. And then you seal it. And you don't open it unless you're going to use it. And use it pretty quick because the longer you store it, the more it stinks. And if it's not fully fermented, the bucket will swell and it will blow the lid off and crap will go everywhere. So you pretty much want it fully fermented. There's an old myth that catfish fishermen use. Put a beer in there, and it'll speed up the fermentation because of the yeast. This is a myth. Now, the beer might provide a little bit of residual sugar and enzymes that may help a little bit in accelerating the old process, but the yeast does nothing. Do you know why? There's no yeast in beer that's alive. It's all dead. They pasteurize, and they kill it unless you're drinking something like bottle condition Chimay or something like that. The beer does pretty much nothing. And besides, you're not looking for alcoholic fermentation. When you make beer, you end up with the spent wheat, barley, etc. It doesn't stink. You're looking for lacto-fermentation, lactobacillus, which is all over wheat. And when you give it the right, wet, nasty environment, the lactobacillus take over, and it's a stinky fermentation. That's part of why it works so well. Now, you got to get this stuff into the water without getting it on your hands. You can make a scoop with a handle, but if you keep it in the bucket, it sinks into the bucket and it stinks. Okay? <laughs> if you keep it outside of the bucket, it still stinks pretty bad. But what I like to use is a blue enameled cup for camping. Blue enamel camping cup. Because once you've scooped out your chum, you can rinse it in the lake and it won't hold any stink on it. Got it? That's It just doesn't hold. Because of the blue enamel, it just it rinses completely and it doesn't stink bad. I would still, after you rinse it out, set it on top of your bucket, not on the floor of your boat or the floor of your car, until it has the time to completely dry. And it's going to stink when you open it. Let's say you want the chum to go out a bit. But you don't want to do it with the cup and you don't want the wind blowing it back on you. Get a kid's baseball bat. A wiffle bat. Okay, a lot of times down at the handle, right, where the little nub on the handle is so that your hand wouldn't slip off of a real bat, 
There's a hole in there. If there's a hole in there, plug it with epoxy, with tape, something, so that nothing will leak out the bottom. Cut the bat. You decide how long and how much with a little bit of an angle on the top. Like, if you know what highlight is or lacrosse, so you can throw with it because it's hollow. You cut the top off the bat. You take your blue cup. You dump your stinky chum in there and you use the bat to throw your chum to get more distance if you want some distance. This works really well for shore fishermen. Do not spill this on yourself. Do not get If you get it on your clothes, the best way to clean them is build a fire and throw your clothes in the fire. It is that bad. But it does work beautifully. That is probably the best chum you can use as a cat fisherman. Now, if you're a multi-species fisherman like I am, and you like to fish for catfish and white bass, what you're going to find out is you get home and you end up with a lot of filleted fish. Now, a lot of people fillet their fish at the lake, and there's cleaning stations, and they throw it in the lake, or they throw it in the garbage or whatever, and it's gone, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's no problems, and if you throw dead pieces of fish in a lake, other things will eat them. It's, it's actually good. You're returning the resource. You're returning the surplus. But some of us fish till late at night, and then we're tired, and we don't feel like it, so we put the fish on ice, we take the fish home, and in the morning we clean the fish. And then we end up with heads and guts and skeletons of fish at home. And if the garbage is going to come that morning or the next day, it's not that big a deal, but if it's going to come later in the week, you could have really stinky problems on your hands. So you take the fish, put it into a plastic bag, all the, this is the remains, and you put it in a freezer, especially if you have a deep freezer. It freezes into a big ball. On garbage day, you pull it out, make sure you set a reminder so you don't end up with a freezer full of this stuff, and you get rid of it. What does it have to do with chumming? This may be legal in some states or localities. I'm just telling you that it works and it's done. When you freeze fish, it becomes more dense. Remember we had our conversation about how water is the one thing that doesn't do that? Water breaks the rule that eventually becomes less dense and floats. When fish freezes solid, it's extremely dense and it sinks like a rock. See where I'm going with this? So if you, if you fish a lot and you have a lot of fish remains and you freeze it, and you put it in your boat, and you take it to your honey hole, and you just drop your frozen ice cubes of fish, the water will slowly thaw it out, and you'll create a nice little chummed environment. This may be illegal in certain states or localities or on certain lakes. I leave it to you to figure this out. I'm just telling you that it works and that it's done. In some places, it's illegal just to chum. In some places, this is why it might be illegal. In some places, it is illegal... For you to have fish in your boat that are cleaned. Did you know this? Some place, especially if filleted. Like a lot of places, if they're gutted, that's okay. But if you fillet the fish, now the fish warden, right? We always call him either the minnow sheriff or the rabbit sheriff. If he's on a lake, he's the minnow sheriff. If he's out when you're hunting, he's the rabbit sheriff. So the minnow sheriff can't measure the, and it can't determine, was this a striper or a hybrid or a white bass or what? So they don't want the fish in pieces, But most of them use their brains, too. Okay, Because like one place we would fish with a boat, we put in on one side of the lake and the cleaning station was on the other side of the lake. So technically, every time we went to the cleaning station, filleted our fish, put the fish in the cooler, threw the remains of the fish away, just like the cleaning station was meant to be, we were fine. And when we got back in the boat and drove over to where we took the boat out, during that period of time, we're technically breaking the law. So... Think and act and be, you know, based on yourself. But I'm just saying that these big chunks of frozen fish are great catfish chum. 
right? So that's channel catfish. And uh, the next one I want to talk about is crappie. I am not a great crappie fisherman. I am a badass catfisherman. I am a badass white bass fisherman. I am a badass bluegill fisherman. I'm pretty good as a bass fisherman, even though I don't talk about it a lot. I'm if when, when I was back up north, I'm great with perch, true perch, and trout. I'll talk about those. Crappie would be my weakest link, but they're such a good fish and such a good table fish um, and such a prolific fish and such a great fish to catch. I want to talk about them at least a little bit. So when it comes to crappie, again, I'm not an expert, but I'll tell you the, the ways I've been able to successfully catch them. Uh, number one, there's times when they move into certain areas to spawn, and, and pretty much if you can find them there, uh, small, small artificials, minnows, you name it, they'll hit it, and you can just catch a ton of them. And, and I have to say that in my times where I've really slammed crappie, I, I feel like it's been kind of a, a luck thing. I've, I've not gone out, targeted them, found them, and got lots of them. It's that they've been on that spawn, and I've, I've found where they're spawning, and like, oh, there's crappie here, and, and, and you just nail them. And the best way I've found is if you can figure out the depth they're at and fishing a live minnow under a float. Uh, with little to no weight, enough weight to get that, that minnow down if he's uh, a good swimming minnow, and if, if he'll just go down on his own with the hook's weight, uh, just, just no weight at all. And uh, when you find them like that, generally you're, you're going to catch them, and they're going to hit, and if you're not catching them, move, because they've moved or they've gone off feet or something like that. And I usually find these in shallows with some standing timber is where I find these types of places or around brush piles and like that. I've also found them on brush piles simply by going out and looking for the brush piles on, um, a, you know, a, a fish finder, finding brush piles and fishing jigs or minnows right at the depth of the top and edges of the brush piles. And uh, a lot of times you do get snagged up and things like that in those scenarios, but there's, they usually hold there. And the other place I've found them is right along um, bridge pylons. So you have a large bridge going over a large lake. You've got pylon deep water and fishing jigs or minnows right along and I mean right up against the edge of that pylon uh, I've caught crappie like that again I'm no expert at crappie fishing and I haven't had anywhere near the success doing it that I've had with other fish now another way that I've actually you know had one really really good night with crappie fishing uh, and this was actually Pennsylvania which is not known as a great crappie state it's not you know they're more of a southern fish as far as being really really prolific and large in the south but we were out in you know like a small mid-sized lake something that's in the neighborhood of like you know a 25 acre lake I, I guess about the size of the lake that uh, Tuscarora is uh, the lake that we were on and um, we were fishing in the dark at night and moon was up and something was slapping the water in some flats. You just could hear it sucking something off of the surface. You know, just it almost sounded like carp were hitting. And uh, we were fishing with different baits and lures through there, and we weren't really catching anything. And um, I got an idea, and you know, using my trusty eagle claw bait holder number two, which is my go-to hook when I don't know what's out there. Nice balance of size and and, and holding capability. I took a big old night crawler and hooked him through the collar like, like I talked about in my stream and lake or my stream and river fishing one. Just one hook through there. But then I took a hypodermic needle and I pushed some air into this worm. Now what a lot of people do with worms and needles, this is a northern technique that's heavily used for trout and lakes. You put a weight on and, and put the the worm about two feet uh, down from the weight and pump them up so when the 
weight sits on the bottom, the, the worm floats about two feet off the bottom. So it's like a reverse of using an above-water float. That way the bait stays put, the line stays tight, but yet the, the bait is suspended a couple feet off the bottom. I just simply didn't use a float, or I didn't use a uh, weight. And you could tell where the fish were. We moved as close as we could without spooking them. We anchored the boat, and I started casting worms onto the surface and leaving the worms float on the surface. And we caught, and we're like, what, what's hitting over there? First one was like a 16-inch crappie, which is a big crappie. And we slammed crappie for about two hours like that. So we got tired of catching them and decided to go home and eat. Um, I have to say, though, that's a situational thing. It's never happened again. I don't know why they were there. I don't know what if they were feeding on. It was pretty late in the summer, or you know, it was well into summer. June bugs, maybe something was on the surface, and those fish were killing it. And they didn't care if it ended up being a worm. Whatever was up there, they would eat. And just single hooked, large night crawlers floated was the ticket for that day. And I tell you that not so much the target crappie, but just that's an example of understanding the behavior the fish is currently exhibiting and the tools that you have. Because another way I've used that is trout. When trout are rising and they're taking flies and you don't have any type of fly to emulate what they're taking, a lot of times they'll take a thing called a mealworm and you hook a mealworm in the tail, uh, real just in that last segment, and then you give him a little pump of air and he'll float. And you can put him out there with, if you put him out there with a really light split shot, just enough to cast him, a lot of times even though the weight sinks, the, the worm will float the weight. I'm talking a little tiny split shot if you need the extra weight, or a fly bubble. But either way, you float that mealworm. Or if you're in a stream and you've got some current to work with, you can pump him up and float him down the stream, right, into the area where the trout are holding. So that's just an example of, of little techniques that you pick up along the way. White bass and stripers and hybrids are, are probably my go-to fish on the lake in the summer in Texas. My number one way I've already told you, you find a hump. Find a hump that's coming at 18 to 22 feet of water surrounded by 28 to 32 feet of water. That's like the formula around here. And a lot of these humps in these lakes around here have a lot of gravel on them. Um, I'm not sure why, but they do. And that's where those fish hang out, especially morning and evening. You get on those humps, and you take a one-ounce slab and with a treble hook, and you drop it all the way to the bottom. And then you reel in your line so there's not too much slack on it, and you vertically jig. You jig up and down about a foot. And a lot of times what we'll do, especially with the white bass, about 18 inches above the slab, we'll put a little lead head jig and a little curly tail uh, jig. And a lot of times we'll catch two at a time. And a lot of times what will happen is you'll catch a striper, or a, I'm sorry, a hybrid or a white bass. Usually you don't catch a lot of stripers this way. And so you've got it hooked. And if you'll be patient and you'll wait, you'll feel that second fish come on to that jig. And I think, I'm not sure, but this is our best theory of all of us that fish this way. This is what we believe is happening. The, the slab is more obvious. And so most of the time when you catch a single fish, you catch it on the slab. Occasionally you catch one on the jig. That's usually when smaller fish are in the area. But usually that first hookup's on the slab. And we know this just from when we don't catch doubles, the majority of the fish are on the slab. If you leave the fish down there, you've got this fish kind of just panicking now, moving around. And just, you know, half a, a foot and a half to a foot away from them is this little jig going around. And it looks like he's chasing it. And, and fish are competitive feeders. 
And when those other fish come to see what's going on, and they see this other little thing, it looks like he's chasing it, they nail it. So that's, that's, that's been our number one way for white bass. Then you get into a point where you see the fish on the sonar. They're holding it at that 18 to 22 feet. You're jigging for them, and they're just not hitting. They're just not hitting. And they're not on the humps as much. They're in channels at that depth. You're finding clouds of bait fish. And they're just, you can't get them to hit that, that, that slab. This is where Hell Pet comes in. Hell Pet is for Hellbender Pet Spoon. It is a well-known secret is the best way I can tell you. Most people don't know how to do it, but it's published on the Internet, so I'm not giving away anything. It's like fishing with a downrigger without a downrigger. You can do it with what's called a planing board, and they make planing boards that go to different depths, and I've, I've had good luck using planing boards. The reason it's called Hell Pet, though, again, is there's a, a lure, a deep diving lure that'll run right at 18 feet, And if you put a weight on it, it'll run right at 22 feet. One little sandbag, half-ounce sandbag bait casting weight on the bill will run it right at 22 feet. It's, it's almost perfect if you're running at a trolling speed of about 2 miles an hour. So either if you've got a boat with a small enough outboard and enough control to run that outboard all the way tacked down, or you kick the trolling motor on in most of your smaller boats where you're, you're running an outboard that has a hard time staying that slow. You take... And you can just Google Hell Pet White Bass, and you'll find articles on it. But I'll, I'll give you the, 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 the basics. You go find a Hellbender uh, bait, uh, crankbait, and they have ones that look like a little striper. I like them best because I think as it goes screaming by at two miles an hour, the other white bass think it's a white bass chasing something, and they kind of perch them up. What's around? What's here? What am I going to bite? But you remove all the hooks from it, and you take out the little eye bolts that hold the hooks on the tail and the one that holds it to the, the main body, and you screw them out, remove the split rings, remove the hooks, and put them back in, and it makes sense to put them back in with epoxy. So you have now the Hellbender with no hooks on it. Off of its tail, where the back hook would be, you tie a leader of a couple feet, three feet long of heavy monofilament. And you get a lure called a pet spoon. It's a very simple little spoon with one big hook off it. The main reason we use a pet spoon is in lakes where they have hybrids and stripers, if one of those grabs a jig, it will straighten the hook out. The, the hook on the pet spoon is thick enough to hold a larger hybrid. Where, like I said, a lot of times with a, like a jig, they will straighten that hook out. And it's a small enough lure that it, it kind of performs the way you want it to in the situation. Jigs work too. A lot of times I'll put a pet spoon on the back, and 18 inches in front of the pet spoon I'll put a jig, especially if I'm fishing a lake without a lot of hybrids in it, where I know it's mostly sand bass. What you do now is figure out where the sand bass, white bass are holding, And if you can kind of mark a couple places that you know is a good area to run, it makes a lot of sense to throw a marker buoy out. So you throw out a marker buoy and then another marker buoy. So you know when you're making that run to pass the one buoy and head toward the other buoy and then turn around and come back. And you usually use a bait casting reel for this. 
not a spinning reel. Bait casting rods just work better. They're stiffer, they're stronger, and you have more control over what I'm about to tell you. As you're approaching the area you want to troll through, you release the bait casting reel and hold it with your thumb so you're letting the line peel out as you're trolling. And we usually release for about an 18 to 20 count in your head. 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, 1,000, like that. And then click the bait over. Now you just hold on to the rod and drive through the area. And in no time at all, that lure will dive down to that 18-foot mark, and it's got that little pet spoon just trolling out behind it. And instead of jigging right over one spot, you're taking a long, slow pass right over the heads of all these fish in the summer that are sitting where? Just above that thermocline at 18 to 22 feet. So you're exposing that lure to thousands of these fish the way they congregate in these areas. And if you hook up, like let's say you're not sure, you're not sure where the fish are. Use your depth finder and you find water that's in the depth ranges that you're looking for, structures that look like you want, so you don't snag the bottom. So you want water that's a little deeper than that 18-foot range. And just slowly troll through the areas. If you hit a fish, throw a marker buoy. There's going to be more there. And once you find them, and it's not just finding them. Sometimes it's finding, like, there's certain spots I know that they congregate on Tawakini, Lake Tawakini, Joe Pool are the two lakes I know best for this, that once you find them, you just go back to that spot in those patterns in that time of year, and the damn things will be there. And you pretty much drive through, and you're pulling out fish. You turn around an S-turn. You come back through. You pick up more fish. And I've had it where I've had my son, two of his friends, and me in a boat. And I'm sitting there with a leather glove on because there's so many fish to deal with and they have fins and they stab you and they stink and they're slimy and a pair of needle nose. And one kid drives a boat and two kids have rods and they're banging doubles on both sides and I'm pulling them off the hook and going, keeper, throwback, keeper, keeper in the live well. And as one kid limits out, you just take him. Now you're driving the boat, you go hold the rod and four guys, a hundred fish in an hour. 14-inch fish. No problem. Happens all the time with that technique. That technique is deadly. There are people that I've seen put as many as three or four jigs on and run that technique. And it's almost like a mobile trot line. There's fish everywhere. I think it's a little ridiculous when you start doing that. If you're catching fish that are a little bit smaller than you want, up the size of your pet spoon a little bit or up the size of your jig a little bit. The thing is, a four-inch sand bass will hit a three-inch slab. They'll do it. They're just psychopaths. They're like little wolves. Um, but that's part of what makes them fun to catch and uh, you know fun to fish for. Next up, um, a fish that everybody thinks of when they think of little kids fishing farm ponds, bluegill, brim, perch. Nobody get their panties in a wad because they're called a name you don't like. Sunnies, sunfish, what have you. Um, they're not. A, there's a true perch, yellow perch, white perch. I'm actually going to talk about yellow perch a bit today because I want to make sure I talk about some stuff for the northern guys. Um, And not just the southern stuff. Uh, bluegills, though, are, are the most you know prominent of the sunfish species. It's a regional thing. I mean, are they brim? They're not really brim. I mean, brim are a, a fish in Africa that has teeth that will tear your finger off. Uh, there's also a sea brim. Um, but it's just a term that gets used, just like perch. Perch in the south, especially the south-central states, Arkansas, Texas, places like that, um, Perch is like a generic term for any panfish. 
And, and so, I mean, I put out that, that video, the series that I did on fishing with flowers, and I called the fish a perch, and every other ass clown, it's not a perch. Just stop being a child, really. Um, but I am talking about bluegill sunfish mostly here. Shell crackers is another one. Long ear sunfish, green sunfish, there's a whole bunch of them, but mostly it's bluegill. And, uh, or in, like I said, Pennsylvania, they're referred to commonly just as sunnies. And, you know, you find a farm pond where there's about a billion of these things, and every one of them is small enough you could mail them with a single postage stamp, and they'd probably fit through the mail slot, too. Um, and you give the kid a little piece of a worm or a corn or a piece of bread and a little number 10 hook and, you know, a bobber, and he learns to fish with them. And we think that's all they're good for. And, God, do smallmouth bass love them when they're little like that, two, three inches Smallmouths really aren't on my list today, but here is one of the techniques I used to use for smallmouths in small ponds in Pennsylvania that had lots of sunfish in them. Um, largemouths will eat a sunfish. I've never found them as aggressive toward them as smallmouths are, though. You get a sack, like a, like a burlap sack or an onion sack. It's great for a live bait bucket. You make yourself a little you know, wood cane pole. out of. You just cut a sapling and tie a string on it and little number 10 or number 12 hook and a little piece of hot dog or corn or whatever that the sunfish will hit. You chum the water and little suckers come up there and you catch about 10 or 20 of those things, throw them in your bag, tie that up, and that's your bait bucket. And then you get your you know, your larger hook and your casting rod or your spin, spin fishing rod out and you hook your sunfish through the bottom of the mouth and out one of the nostrils and you free line those for smallmouths. And it just tear them up. So, you know, a sunfish is a bait fish to people or a kid's fish or whatever. Well, you get bluegills that are bigger than your hand. They're a hard-fighting little fish, especially on, you know, you fish ultralight or very light-action rods, four-pound line, and you're catching, you know, three-quarter-pound bluegill. It's pretty exciting, and it's a lot of fun. And once you find them, you can catch a lot of them. And they are just a fabulous-tasting fish. White sweet, firm flesh. Filleted, cut the, 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 uh, the, the belly bones out of them and knock off the, uh, the skin with a fillet knife, and you can go through them quick once you get good at it. Man, and they're just, you, you cornmeal bread that and fry that. They're just perfect. No one gets upset, and again, they actually benefit, just like white bass, they benefit from being harvested. They reproduce so prolifically, and especially in the southern waters, they grow so fast that if you don't harvest them, what you end up with is a, a huge population of stunted fish. So it's, it's also a fish that you can keep and you can feel good about. There are, especially bluegills, though, they're lower on the food chain. Um, white bass are a true predator fish. Bluegills will eat minnows, no doubt, but only as they get bigger. They eat a lot of smaller zooplankton. They eat a lot of insects and things like that. And because they're lower on the food chain, they accumulate less toxins. So if you're concerned about things like mercury buildup in fish, Fish like bluegill will generally have a lower mercury uh, count in their body than things like bass and trout and things that are, or uh, muscalines or pike or more predatory fish. So they have that going for them as well. Favorite way to catch them is spawning season. You're looking for that big, shallow, flat area with all of those plate-sized depressions and holes in the weeds in it. And once you find them, if they'll eat it, they'll eat it. I mean, if they'll ever eat it, they'll eat crickets, worms, small jigs, small crankbaits, anything, they'll tear it up. Big old copper-nosed uh, bluegills. Um, again, making honey holes 
a bunch of cinder blocks. You can find a windfall of cinder blocks and a little bit of a like a shallow flat that goes to sort of a deep hole. It's just a just a place where the where there's like a ledge. And when I say deep for bluegills, I'm talking six feet, five feet of water, especially if there's a nice ledge that comes out two or three feet at the most and then drops off that last one or two feet. That's 12, 14 feet from shore. That kind of area is just sweet. And, you know, 30, 40 cinder blocks dumped into an area like that. This may be illegal in your state or locality or on your body of water. Okay? Just saying it's done. The holes in those cinder blocks, they just, they love that. They love to hang out there. Um, also, like I talked about, four to six inch PVC pipe bolted together in kind of like apartments. Those are great for holding sunfish in an area as well. When I lived in Florida, the small lakes, it was so easy to catch the bigger bluegills. It was the same type of thing. Shallow, sloping shoreline, dropping to deeper water. You would catch tons of little bluegill in that shallower water and just past them. Just past them, small piece of worm, split shot weight, to get the, the bait down before the little fish found it, and the bigger fish would always hang in the summer just past the little fish. Um, or under docks, around pylons, things like that. Generally, I've never caught bluegill in deeper water. I'm talking, you know, 18 feet of water and things like that. I've never caught them there. I know at certain times of year, certain guys that really specialize in bluegill drift fish for them in deeper water and do well. I've always found them in those shallow water, shallow flats, spawning, uh, shallow water up under um, docks. Chumming for them works really well. Generally, nothing more than some bread is necessary. Uh, mealworms also work good as chum. Uh, I've found a lot of times in places where they'll want to hit the surface, a small piece of bread hooked onto a number 10 bait holder, not to where it will sink, just kind of like hooked, like you take a piece of the crust and fold it over, and then kind of pull the hook into it. No weight. You can cast, you know, 15, 20 feet that way pretty easy with a light-action rod. They'll suck that off the surface. A lot of times, even though you're catching smaller fish below the surface, it's only the bigger ones for some reason will come up there and slam that bait. Um, I've caught bluegill just about everywhere. And I have to say, the hardest place for me to find good-sized bluegill are larger lakes in Texas. I don't know what it is. I don't do well on them. Um, I don't find a lot of them. Smaller lakes, um, you know, a couple acres, a couple three, four acres, coves, flats, uh, and then some of the, the mid-sized lakes I do okay. But the really big lakes, um, I think it's probably because I spend a lot of time after other fish that are of higher food value, but um, I, I don't tend to catch a lot of fish, um, a lot of bluegills, even when I do target them in these bigger lakes. They're more of the, the smaller stained lakes, not the bigger clear lakes that I, I tend to do better for them with. Just a couple fish for you northern guys and some of my experiences with those. Yellow perch. We tend to do really well on yellow perch with minnows uh, or even worms. Drift fishing um, in the spawning season, you just pick up a lot of yellow perch, um, especially in, I'd say, you know, you're looking for water around eight feet of depth with some decent structure, rocks and things like that, and we've done very well. We also tended to do really well with yellow perch in the early to mid-summer 
in central Pennsylvania using, again, bluegills for bait, but smaller than the ones that we would use for um, uh, smallmouth bass. And we would usually find a little stock pond or a little tank or something like that that was full of bluegill and bait a minnow trap with bread and leave it overnight. And then the next morning we were going to go fish, we'd go by and pick that trap up. So we're looking for bluegills that are like an inch. And I don't know why, but they worked so much better than minnows on perch. And we would fish about two feet under a float. Um, and again, kind of like the bluegill pattern, we were looking for is a, a gentle sloping uh, uh, shoreline. And just where, and you can, again, you can find this out with the bobber trick, even on bigger lakes when you're shore fishing, a bobber with a weight, and the weight is sufficient to slowly pull the bobber completely underwater. And so you keep casting out and reeling in until you find the place where it's, it goes from shallow to a little bit deeper. About that far out, with these bluegills suspended two to three feet below a bobber, it was dynamite on yellow perch. Yellow perch are the only fish I've ever caught with any consistency with some ice fishing, but I'm not an ice fisherman, and it was always when I went with somebody else, and they'd go out and they'd run their little fish finder through the hole and, and things like that, and we'd set up a bunch of tippets, and you just watch, and when the tippet goes up, you go pull it in, and most of what we caught were perch that way, uh, and we usually use leeches for them uh, in that, that situation. The, the yellow perch is actually in the same family as the walleye, and uh, it's kind of like a miniature walleye. And they, I'll tell you the reason I put them in. If you live where they are, learn how to catch them. They are the best eating fish that you can catch in large numbers easily that I've ever had. Their meat is sweet like a walleye. But I've found walleye are a fish you got to get good with finesse. And they really pattern kind of weird here and there. When you find a body of water with yellow perch in it, it's kind of like the north equivalent to the white bass, but they taste better. You just have to find where they are and get the bait where they are. Get it at the depth they're at and of the size of their liking, and they're going to hit. And, you know, you can catch 20, 30 fish pretty quickly, and they reproduce heavily, and nobody gets upset that you take a limit home every day. Um, also for you guys in the north, something that I've caught a lot of in northern lakes are trout. Um, rainbow trout, brown trout, brook trout, doesn't really matter. My best ways of catching trout and lakes have always been finding structure and usually with you know standing timber and things like that in coves. I've done best with either spinners, just plain old MEPS spinners, something like a willow or a Colorado blade, rooster tail, that type of thing, um, minnows, and plain old worms. Those have been my go-tos. I have also found that... <laughs> Burke, Berkey makes all this, uh, Berkeley makes all these different power baits and stuff now, but there's just a good old fashioned thing called garlic bait. And before there were 15 different varieties of these little baits and power worms and all this crap, there was just plain old pink garlic bait. And that floats. Okay. And generally trout are mid water feeders. So if you're in about four feet of water, you want about two foot of float. So you got a split shot about 24 inches back from a treble hook and you make a little dough ball of this garlic bait around it and if you find where trout are, they will tear that up. I don't care if they're native wild trout. I don't care if they are stockies. Uh, stockies is a term we use in the Northeast for any stocked trout. I don't care if they're holdovers. Those are stocked fish that have been in for a year. They just kill that stuff. 
They just absolutely kill that stuff. When I was a little kid up in the Northeast, they have these things called fishing rodeos at different places where they have these smaller lakes and, and what have you, or like dams on a, a, a stream where they have little kids go. And only kids can like under 12 can fish. When I was a little kid, I'm probably like four or five years old, my dad basically won all the fishing rodeos. He would take me and he would rig up with this garlic bait and just put the rod in my hand. He would cast and do everything for me, which no one cares when the kid's four or five years old. And, uh, man, we killed it. I mean, those are some of my earliest fishing memories. And uh, I'd win biggest fish, first limit, biggest limit, all, all kinds of little trophies and, and stuff like that. And, and all the old man wanted was the fish out of it. Uh, and I was his ticket to get those fish because only kid, kid, kids could fish. But I was like the only one you would see there using this stuff, and it was absolutely dynamite. Small treble hooks, like number 12s. And that, I mean, you're talking about small bait, a small treble hook, and trout are a very light feeder. As soon as they touch it, wham, you've got them. It's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's almost criminal how effective uh, it, it can really be when you find fish. I went and fished uh, a lake in Vermont one time, one of my sabbaticals where I just kind of took off and left for a while. Uh, this was after my Appalachian Trail walk when I got out of the Army, but before I came to Texas. Uh, when I got back, I bought a little blue car, and uh, I drove all over New England with it, some of the places I didn't quite get to on my walk, and uh, took a couple weeks up there before I decided to come down to Texas. And I ended up staying at this, this, uh, this hotel in uh in vermont i think it was called the red sleigh inn if i remember it was somewhere near the green mountains and they had this pretty good size pond i'd say it was like a acre-ish pond in the back and they had catch and release fishing with barbless hooks only and there was a ton of people out there and no one was catching any fish and they were saying there's big rainbow trout in this in this pond but no one can get them to bite so i really hadn't planned for this so But I had fishing gear with me, as I always do. So I went and I took some of my, you know, and I wanted to use treble hooks in this situation. But, you know, it's a number 10 bait holder eagle claws. And got a pair of, uh, what do you call it, uh, needle nose pliers. And crimped the barbs flat on them. So crimped the barb flat, so now I'm not breaking the rules. And I had some of that old pink garlic bait. You know, Berkey makes it now, but I don't remember who used to make it. And uh, two foot back with a split shot and this stuff. And I'm out there with a freaking ultralight rod with a little reel the size of a robin's egg on it with 16, 18-inch rainbow trout tumbling out of the water to the point where other people fishing left. They just got tired of seeing it, and they left. I, was t I ended up there alone, and uh, I probably caught a good dozen of these. And these are yeah, that's a good-sized trout for a rod like that. And I'm just about to go in, and I throw, and I ended up catching a fish. That was probably the biggest rainbow trout I've ever caught, somewhere in the range of a 30-inch fish. I couldn't believe I actually landed the damn thing. And then this is just kind of a funny story. So I'm a young guy. I'm staying at this hotel. Sign clearly says all fish are catch and release. Don't harm the fish. Barbless hooks only. And I get this fish in. And it's got this little hook right in the corner of its mouth, but I had to play it really gently because it was such a big fish on such a long, light line. I put my hand underneath its belly. I pick it up. I, I've actually never held a trout this big in my life. I just The hook just comes out so gently, and I put the fish in the water, and the damn thing goes belly up. I'm like, I, 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 
I didn't have much money left on this trip. I was basically going to stay at this place for a day, stay one more day on my way back, and then go home. I had just enough money to do that plus gas. And uh, I'm like, the guy's going to see it. He's going to throw me out of the hotel. So I'm out there getting stunned by mosquitoes, standing in the water up to my knees, just like running this fish through the water, running it through the water, running it through the water. Finally, it starts to get its fins going, and it swims away. And I'm like, oh, God. So uh, I, I just, you know, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of an extra push for the garlic bait on trout in the lakes. It just, I have a long history with it, and it, it's worked really well for me. So final thoughts today. Number one, I hope I get this episode up. It looks like the Internet's come back again. It keeps going away and coming back, going away and coming back, that type of thing. Um, and hopefully I'll get it up. I've actually, at this point, I've missed my interview because I haven't been able to get my guest on Skype for the day. So hopefully I will be able to get him as soon as I wrap up here. Uh, I did call his cell and let him know. Um, but anyway, this has been uh, kind of a tough day to get out of show. But on, on lake fishing, I just kind of want to point out, because some of you guys that are switched on lake fishermen are like, man, there's a lot he left out. Well, it, just think about this. I didn't even cover really fishing for largemouth bass. Uh, and I just touched a little bit on smallmouths. But just on bass, um, if you wanted to talk about everything bass fishing, from sonars to gitsits and soft baits and pig and jigs and spinner baits and topwater baits and worms and drop shots and all of the stuff that goes into bass fishing. I mean, you could probably do a podcast a day on bass fishing and not run out of things to talk about, the different tournaments and techniques and stuff, all lakes versus rivers versus streams and patterns and years. There's no way to cover it all. My, my hope today was to give you guys some information about some tips and things and tricks that I've learned over the years, a general overview, how to think about lakes. It's really about the structure. That's why I put most of it not into the species but the structure. You learn to deal with the riprap and rocky areas, the points, humps, docks, bridges, brush piles, the standing timber, jetties, coves, weed lines, ledges, holes, shallows, um, and any other structure you can create for yourself or find. And understand that thermocline, especially its effect in the summer. And I, I don't know that you get much of a thermocline in, in the winter. I really don't. And I'm not a winter fisherman. It's the time of year that I don't fish much. So I'm not familiar with it. But definitely the summer, that thermocline becomes its own structure. And then you start figuring out how the structures relate to each other. You'll find fish. You may not find the exact fish you're looking for, but you'll find fish. And it's just a matter of time and working and getting out there. I think the best way to learn a lake is hire a guide. And I think the best way to, to hire a guide to learn a lake is to be honest with the guide. I want to learn this lake and I want to fish it myself. And I don't just want you to show me a couple spots. I want you to teach me the lake. And I will hire you four or five times in the next year, maybe more, to teach me the lake. And I will fish the places you take me. And I will fish other places that I will learn. And I will, as I become experienced on this lake, I'll become one of your contacts. And I'll let you know where fish are. I'll, I'll text you, hey, right now they're hitting over here. So if you have a client and you're having trouble finding fish, I'll be, I'll be part of your intel network on the lake. But I'm going to be here. I'm not, and guides, this is what guides are afraid of. Two things. One, they take a guy fishing, they show him one or two spots, and that guy goes to that spot every day to the point where the spot gets overpressured and it becomes not a good spot for the guy to take his clients anymore. That's one. It's not that likely. Because most people don't have anywhere near that much time to go fishing on a lake. 
And if they do, they figure it out themselves, they don't hire a guy. The second one, and this is the bigger fear, you're going to compete with them. They're going to teach you the lake, you're going to get your guide license, you're going to start guiding on the lake in all the places that they taught you how to fish that lake. And guides get really stupid if you're a guide. I want you to tell you that's the word for it. Really stupid. I've seen guides let the air out of other guides' boat uh, trailer tires or, or their, their vehicle. I know of one guide that dumps sugar in a guy's fuel tank. Um, I've seen instances where guides have just basically MF'd the other guide all over the Internet when the other Internet guide is not really that Internet savvy just to ruin his reputation. And the reason is that guides don't apply marketing to their business the way they apply fishing to their business. In other words, when the fish aren't biting somewhere, the guides go somewhere else. Guides compete over a very small number in their mind of potential customers, and they don't do a good job of marketing their business. With the Internet advent, they've gotten really big into the localized forums and people finding them that way on their website. And because they're fishing, they're, they're, they're dealing with a small clientele, and they don't do good follow-up marketing. They don't, you know, once you have a guy that goes fishing with you and has a good day, you need to be following up with that guy. I, the good guides I know, they have a text, text numbers, uh, the, the phone numbers of all their, their clients that like to go a lot. And if they have an open boat that day, they say, I'm running a half price today. Anybody that wants the first guy, I can, I can go out at three, from three to five today or whatever. And they fill the boat. Or they say, I've got a single fisherman today, and we're fishing from 8 to 1, or tomorrow, whatever, and uh, he's okay with splitting the cost of the trip with another guy. And you'd say, well, why would you do that? You've already got the, the guy booked. Well, you put two people together, they like each other, they're more likely to bring somebody else and go fishing with you in the future, and you've created a relationship, that's always good for business, And what ends up happening a lot of times is those two guys start talking and go, hey, if we could always do this, we could go more often. The good guides I know that do stuff like that, they have more business than they can handle. When you call them up and you want to book a trip, they're like, when? Next week? I'm No, I'm sorry, man. I, need, I, I got three weeks out. Or I know someone I can refer you to for next week, but I can't take you. And guides that aren't doing that, you're not you're not marketing your business right. I'm sorry, you're just not. There's, there's way more fishermen than there are guides. But I'm telling you this as a client, and I'll talk more about this in the guide show. That's their big fear. So if they know flatly, I'm not gonna freaking compete with you, and I'm not gonna wear out a spot, and I am hiring you not just for a day on the lake, but to teach me the lake, and I'm gonna hire you multiple because most of them are never gonna see one client six times in a year anyway. You're, you're a cash cow for them at that point. And then they know, hey, this guy wants to go out. That's the guy I'll call when I have an open boat, especially if you're flexible with your times. right? And if you'll hire guides during the middle of the week, take a day off of work if you have a job where you can do that, they're a lot less pressured then if they're full-time guides. They don't feel as pressured by everybody else around them on the lake. And if you tell them, look, I'm more concerned about understanding the patterns of this water, the structures, the spots, and the, the seasonality that I am with leaving with a cooler fish today, you take the pressure off of producing for them, they tend to really lighten up. And, and, and usually what happens with a guy like that is you guys become friends. 
I've, I've become friends with several guides that way. Not because I was like, I'll manipulate you into being my friend. Just like when that somebody's like that with you, you're like, well, hell, this guy's cool. And most people actually want more friends. You'd be surprised. So that's with hiring a guide to learn a lake. That's kind of my short side and answer on that one. Hope you enjoyed today's show. It does look like I have the internet back, and it does look like I have our guest for tomorrow um, on the uh, on Skype right now. So assuming the uh, internet holds out, I'll get this show published and I'll get him interviewed. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.